Hello and welcome to episode 44 of the Big Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidemir Logende. Today on the show, I'll be talking about a warning from the National Security Agency, the NSA, about public Wi-Fi networks. I'll also be talking about the privacy issue regarding home sales in the United States. Um, I would also be talking about the new details about how Russian threat actors hacked 27 U.S. attorneys' offices between May and December last year. And finally, I will be wrapping up the episode by answering a listener's question about what makes up a good and effective security operation center, SOC. Thank you for your time. Let's get to it. So for the first... um topic on this episode, I have how the NSA, the National Security Agency, has warned about public Wi-Fi networks and how they can be a hotbed of hacker activity. So in a public service announcement that was posted on Thursday, July 29th, the U.S. National Security Agency urged security teams to be mindful of the wireless threats that employees face when using Wi-Fi networks. And the NSA also lumps Bluetooth technology and near-field communications, also known as NFC, into this list of worrisome protocols. So Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and NFC. According to the PSA, quote, data sent over public Wi-Fi, especially open public Wi-Fi that does not require a password to access, is vulnerable to theft or manipulation, end of quote. So the announcement also includes warnings of fake access points that can steal user credentials and scheme other personal data that are retrieved on these evil twin access points. So evil twin access points are basically access points that mimic the original access points. They have the same name. um, They have the same kind of setup. And of course, there's no password. So it's also open. And maybe the changes in the name might be so um, undetectable. So maybe um, a different spelling or a different character, maybe using one instead of L and so on. So that way people would connect to this evil twin access point and then every data they send. And of course, this evil twin access point would also have an internet connection. So everything these users who are not um, the unsuspecting users, everything they send to and from the internet would go through this attacker's access point. The NSA also cited Bluetooth as a convenient protocol for private use, but when used in public, it can be a nasty security liability. The NSA advised turning off Bluetooth in public to prevent exposure to a range of attacks such as Blueborn or Bluebugging, both used to access and exfiltrate corporate data on targeted devices. So regarding near-field communications, also known as NFC, which is a handy tool for contactless payments. So if you, if you've ever used Google Pay or Apple Pay, those operate using the NFC technology. The NSA said um, data transfer between devices using NFC can be full of cybersecurity risks. The NSA also suggests disabling the NFC feature when not needed, and that's if possible and not bringing devices near other unknown electronic devices as this can trigger automatic communication and also not using NFC to communicate passwords or other sensitive data. In addition, the NSA suggests that users should consider additional security measures such as limiting or disabling device location features using strong device passwords and only using trusted device accessories such as original charging cords. And I would like to add one more thing. If you ever traveled um, at an airport and you see these charging cords um, just waiting there for people to plug their phone to, do not use those ones 
if you can avoid it as much as possible. So always have your own charger that you take with you and even plugging those things into those USB ports is also not advisable because you don't know what's on the other end of those USB ports and you connect your charger to it and maybe you're, you're silently or secretly passing information to some other person at the other end. So if if possible, use the, the socket, the charger and the socket connected to a wall and then charge your phone or computer that way. Um, as basic as these warnings are, they still go unheeded by many people. In an ideal world, an important cybersecurity practice would be to make sure that employees don't keep personal stuff on their work devices. But then, of course, we all know that enforcing compliance along these lines is very tricky. In addition, with the shift to remote work, there are more people using public Wi-Fi now, and many of them connect work devices to those public Wi-Fi's then when working remotely or while on business trips. So understanding and implementing the suggestions from the NSA could be hard for average users and there is the substantial amount of work that needs to be done when compliance um, is can be deemed to be effective. So the next topic I'm going to be talking about is the privacy issue regarding home selling and home buying. And we all know now that the, the housing market is um, kind of like a mess. So Nowadays, home sellers are secretly using hidden cameras during house showings in order to hear what prospective buyers and real estate agents are saying. So home buyers have been facing stiff competition and rising prices in many housing markets across the US, and that can make getting to the closing table even more challenging than expected. More interesting is that home sellers are now taking extra precautions to get their homes off the market and onto the next owner by any means necessary, including investing in hidden cameras. So there was this new survey by LendingTree that revealed that three in 10 home sellers have secretly recorded potential buyers while they were touring the property. The survey was conducted online for 347 home sellers and 1,160 home buyers between June 24 and June 29 of 2021, just last month, uh, almost two months ago out of the 347 home sellers 49 percent say they use cameras to find out what buyers do or do not like about their homes which makes this the top reason that was cited for camera use just to find out what the buyers do or do not like about their homes meanwhile 36 percent of the sellers who use cameras claim that they do so to gather information that would be useful during negotiations so after the buyers, the potential buyers have come to look at the house, they use the cameras to see what they are trying to, what they like or don't like about the house. And then they will not use that information during the negotiations if the potential buyers decide to go forward with an offer for that house. 31% have cameras in place to make sure that their home is safe during showings. And 23% rely on cameras to find out what their real estate agent is saying about their home. 10% of the sellers who use cameras say they just always have cameras on for security reasons. Home sellers were able to choose multiple reasons in the survey and we have a lot of um, variety in the, in the responses. Um, in terms of gender, male home sellers were more likely than female home sellers to use hidden cameras and 36% of men selling homes had spy cameras compared to 23% of women selling homes. Meanwhile, buyers have also picked up on the possibility that they are being watched. 
nearly one third of the buyers, the potential buyers have suspected hidden cameras when used during home tours with 19% saying that they saw one inside the home. 13% said they did not spot the camera, but they suspected one was there. And in terms of geography, buyers in the Northeast region of the US were most likely to suspect hidden cameras were in play while those in the Midwest were least concerned. So the Northeast, like New York, Massachusetts, um, Philadelphia, compared to the Midwest, like um, Chicago, um, Ohio, um, and so on. So while some sellers think that cameras could help them strike a deal for their home, consumers say it could have the opposite effect. 44% of the survey's respondents said they would no longer buy their dream home if they found out that the seller recorded them during the tour in order to hear their thoughts on the listing. In addition, 56% said it's unfair and an invasion of privacy for sellers to use hidden cameras to eavesdrop during showings. So despite their concerns, 32% of consumers say that they would nonetheless consider hidden cameras for their own home selling processes in the future. So real estate agents also have their own reservations about this surveillance that's going on. More than a quarter of the buyers who worked with an agent said that their agent warned them that hidden cameras could be used when they tore the property, according to the survey. So real estate agents actually know that this is going on. But then, of course, their own is just to match sellers with buyers. So they they themselves don't necessarily have enough, um, maybe enough reservations other than maybe they understand why the sellers are doing it. Maybe they understand why the buyers might feel somehow about it. But at the end of the day, a real estate agent's job is complete when the buyer closes on the house and then they get their commission and so on and so forth. So between surveillance concerns and the current conditions of the housing market, buyers may be struck um, between a rock and a hard place. And in April, U.S. home prices actually rose at their fastest rate in three decades. A combination of high demand and low supply as home builders struggle to keep pace as economists urging potential home buyers to wait until next year, 2022, before they make their purchases. So the third... um news item i have here is the department of justice in the u.s says russian threat actors hacked 27 federal prosecutors offices so on friday july 30 the u.s department of justice announced that the russian threat actors behind the solar wind cyber espionage campaign discovered last december broke into the email accounts of some of the most prominent federal prosecutors offices around the country between may and december of last year the Department of Justice said that at least 80% of Microsoft Office 365 email accounts that were used by employees in the four U.S. attorney's offices in New York were breached. So in total, 27 U.S. attorney's offices all over the country had at least one employee's um, email account compromised during this hacking campaign. So all 27 U.S. attorney's offices that were breached are the Central Dif- District of California, Northern District of California, the District of Columbia, that's the um, Washington, D.C., the Northern District of Florida, the Middle District of Florida, and also the Southern District of Florida. Um, there's also the Northern District of Georgia, the District of Kansas, the District of Maryland, the District of Montana, the District of Nevada, the District of New Jersey, the Eastern District of New York, the Northern District of New York, the Southern District of New York, and the Western District of New York. So all four districts of New York. And there's also the Eastern District of North Carolina, 
the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, the Middle District of Pennsylvania, and the Western District of Pennsylvania. Um, in Texas, there are also three districts affected, the Northern District of Texas, the Southern District of Texas, and the Western District of Texas. There's also the District of Vermont, um, the Eastern and Western District of Virginia, and the Western District of the State of Washington. The Department of Justice said in a statement that it believes that these accounts were compromised from May 7, 2020 to December 27, 2020. So this time frame is very notable because the SolarWinds campaign, which infiltrated dozens of private sector companies and think tanks, as well as at least nine U.S. government agencies, was first discovered and publicized in mid-December. So in April of this year, the U.S. government announced sanctions, including the expulsion of Russian diplomats in response to the SolarWinds hack and Russian interference in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. So far, Russia has denied any wrongdoing. Emails sent between prosecutors and employees of U.S. attorney's offices frequently contain all sorts of sensitive information, including case strategy discussions and the names of confidential informants. The administrative office of the U.S. courts confirmed in January of 2021 that it was also breached, giving the SolarWinds hackers another entry point to steal confidential information like trade secrets, espionage targets, whistleblower reports, and arrest warrants. The DOJ, the Department of Justice, said all victims had been notified and they are working to mitigate operational security and privacy risks that are caused by the hack. So back in January of this year, the DOJ said it had no indication that classified systems were impacted. The DOJ did not provide additional detail about what kind of information was taken and what impact such a hack might have on ongoing cases. But we know that a hack of this magnitude, um, of this duration, will definitely have some kind of impact on either ongoing cases or new cases that charges have not been filed or even old cases, right? Because old cases would have confidential informants whose identities have not been revealed for some reason or the other. So all of this is definitely going to have some impact based on this information on this hack. So multiple U.S. government agencies confirmed that they were breached following the discovery of the SolarWinds hack last December. And these um, agencies include the U.S. Department of the Treasury, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, the Department of State, the, Dep the National Institutes of Health, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Energy, the National Nuclear Security Administration, um, among others. SolarWinds reportedly spent about $3.5 million following the supply chain attack, including costs related to remediation and incident investigation. So for the listener question for this episode, um, I have a question from James L., who is the Director of Cybersecurity in Alabama. So um, he asked, what are the elements of an effective security operation center, SOC or SOC? So for, for that question, um, great question, by the way, James. In theory, a SOC ranges from a single cybersecurity analyst to a team of analysts focused on cybersecurity services for an organization. A SOC can be outsourced to a managed security service provider, MSSP, or it can be run in-house, or it could be something in between, so kind of like an hybrid SOC with part of it um, being run by, by an MSP and part of it being run internally. So it all depends on the resources available to the organization, the size of the organization, and the needs of the organization. So typically, the responsibilities of a SOC are aligned with the goals of the organization it is protecting, 
And from personal experience, I believe every SOC should have some form of the following services. The first is research and development. So what does that mean? The cyber threat landscape is constantly evolving and an effective SOC should be up to date on the nature of this evolution and how it affects the organization it is protecting by developing new tools and techniques and then modifying existing tools to improve effectiveness. So next is situational and security awareness, which I categorize under threat intelligence. So this provides the organization with awareness of its operational environment as well as potential threats. And as you might have noticed, this security um, awareness and situational awareness goes hand in hand with research and development. So when the threat intel team identifies a new um, threat that is coming up on the horizon, for example, ransomware um, became a full-blown threat sometime last year and late 2019, a lot of teams and organizations actually began to modify their tools to be able to detect ransomware attacks before it happened. So research and development works hand in hand with the threat intelligence team simply because new threats pop up all the time. Even ransomware began to evolve sometime early this year. So now we started seeing different forms of ransomware where the threat actors would not only lock your your data they would also now steal those data so that even if you pay up, they could still release that data and then kind of mess with you on both fronts. And now there's the, the new evolution of ransomware where they, they, they would steal the data, they would go through it to identify parts of that data that indicates criminal activity. So they would threaten the company to report them to the police that they found evidence of criminal activity within the data they stole. And then they would also now ask for more ransom so that not only are they holding their data ransom, they are now blackmailing them into reporting this potential criminal activity that they found in the data that they stole. So next up is incident management or incident response. So this is basically how organizations respond to security-related events, and this covers the actions that the SOC takes when certain events occur, such as isolating systems, alerting team members, and implementing remediation actions to resolve the issue. And then, of course, there's digital forensics, which is basically the act of gathering evidence during or after an incident to determine the cause of the incident and possibly prepare for legal action. Then there's vulnerability management, which is basically identifying and managing risk from technical vulnerabilities. This commonly involves um, targeting vulnerabilities within software that are found on servers, laptops, and Internet of Things devices. Most SOCs use vulnerability scanners and outside threat intel to identify vulnerabilities. And sometimes a good threat intel team also works um, hand-in-hand with the research and development, like I mentioned earlier, as well as the vulnerability management team. And last but not the least is risk management. So um, this basically is identifying and making decisions to deal with organizational risk, and it pertains to managing any kind of risk from physical risk to patching vulnerabilities that exist within software. So risk management basically encompasses everything that every other team does, because Eventually, a, a good um, a good risk management team would be able to to um, maybe work with the incident response team, for example, to mitigate the risk following an incident that happened. 
So that's all I have for today's episode of The Bid Picture. The production, editing, fact-checking, audio engineering, and graphic design were done by yours truly, Bidemir Logunde. Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity topics, news, events, and incidents, and the lessons we can all learn from them for robust cyber threat intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe to The Bid Picture on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please share the show with everyone you think might benefit from it. And for questions, comments, or suggestions, please email bdme at thebeadpicture.com. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at beadpicture, as well as on the Clubhouse app at bead. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. This would help to promote the podcast and place it in front of everyone who needs to hear these things and we'll talk about every episode. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.